This next event is recorded by all four reporters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Matthew chapter 14, verses 14 to 21, Mark chapter 6, verses 32 to 44, Luke chapter 9, verses 11 to 17, and John chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. And like we always do, we're going to synchronize all four reports. Jesus went to the farther side of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd was following him because they had seen the signs and the miracles which he continually performed upon those who were sick. When the crowds saw Jesus and the apostles going in their boat and recognized who they were, they ran on foot from all the surrounding towns, and they got to Jesus' destination at the shore ahead of him before he landed. Matthew and Mark report that when Jesus landed and went ashore, he saw the great crowd waiting, and he was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he welcomed them and talked to them about the kingdom of God and began to cure their sick back to health as he taught them many things. And this went on until the evening. Now at that time, Jesus walked up the mountainside and sat down there with his disciples. The feast of the Jews, the Passover, was approaching. And when the day began to decline and evening came, the disciples and twelve apostles said to him, This is a remote and barren place, desolate and isolated. The day is now over and the hour is late. So dismiss this crowd and send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and neighboring villages to find lodging and food for themselves. But then Jesus said, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And Jesus looked up, and seeing the vast multitude, he said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? But John's report points out that Jesus only said this to prove Philip, for he well knew what he was about to do. In other words, Jesus had already planned to feed this crowd, and he knew exactly how to do it. But he knew Philip was stressing out about this. So he asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not enough that everyone may receive even a little bit. Now folks, in our present economy, what Philip called 200 penny worth would be about $40 to us. So Philip saying, 40 bucks to blow on bread for this crowd won't be enough to give everyone even a little bit. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there is a little boy here who has with him five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many people? And then the other disciples said, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. So that idea is out of the question. So then Peter says, well, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Good old Peter. Now, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't say that Peter asked that, but it's only Mark's report that records that question, and Mark was Peter's secretary. I love synchronizing these reports and paying attention to who reports what because it's almost like you're there and you can see how these events were colored by each unique perspective. Obviously, Jesus and his disciples have with them a certain amount of cash on hand to support themselves sparingly, but they never intended on using those funds to feed anyone else, certainly not a crowd of this size. We'll find out here in a minute that it was over 5,000 people. So this starts off with the disciples and apostles asking Jesus to send them away. It's getting dark. The Passover's coming. They need to be getting reservations for lodging before all the rooms are taken, and they obviously need to get something to eat. But none of that can happen if all these people keep hanging around here. That's kind of the feel you get from their statement to Jesus. But Jesus says, no, don't send them away. You feed them. And with that statement, with that command, you know the disciples, without saying anything out loud, you know they were trying to figure out how. And of all who were there, Philip must have been the guy who was stressing out over it the most, because he's the one that Jesus picked on. We don't know how much money they had, but judging from Philip's response, it must have been no more than 200 pennyworth, because that's the number he was using for his math, 200 pennyworth, or $40 in our economy. 
So Philip's doing the math in his head. Okay, Jesus wants us to feed them, so let's see, $40, 5,000 people. This isn't going to work. And of course, Jesus knows that's what's going on in Philip's head. So Jesus asks him, hey, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? So Philip gets it off his chest and says, well, 40 bucks isn't enough. So after he says that, their dilemma is out in the open. So then Andrew, Peter's brother Andrew, tries to think creatively and says, well, there is this little boy here who has with him five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many people? And just like a typical brother would do, Peter disregards his brother's bright idea and says, well, shall we go and buy $40 worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You know, it's already been established that 40 bucks isn't enough to buy everyone bread. But after Andrew says, hey, what about these five body loaves and two fish? Suddenly spending that 40 bucks sounds like a great idea. So when Andrew suggests the five barley loaves and two fish, his brother Peter sort of says, yeah, thanks, Andrew, great idea. So Jesus, you want us to go buy 40 bucks worth of bread and give it to the to eat? You don't pick up on that unless you synchronize these reports. But then after Peter's little retort, Jesus dismisses it and goes back to Andrew's suggestion and says, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had looked and knew, they said, Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, Bring them here and make all the people sit down. Now the ground was covered with thick green grass at the spot. So the men threw themselves down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus had them organized in ranks of hundreds and by fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and blessed them, and then broke the loaves and handed the pieces to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And he kept on giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And so also he did with the fish, as much as they wanted. And they all ate and were satisfied. When they had all had enough, he said to his disciples, Now, go gather up the fragments and the broken pieces that are left over, so that nothing will be lost. So accordingly, they gathered them up, and they filled twelve baskets with fragments left over by those who had eaten from the five barley loaves and of the fish. And those who had eaten were about five thousand men. And Matthew goes even further to add that that number five thousand doesn't include the women and the children, so it was more than five thousand. This is a really neat little entry here with all kinds of meaty little nuggets to chew on. Jesus gave his disciples a command. He said, you feed them. Jesus gave his disciples a command in which the means to follow out that command wasn't known. With their own understanding, there was absolutely no way to follow out that command. But that's because they forgot Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And they also forgot Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. But leaning on their own understanding instead of the Lord, the answer wasn't there. But the answer was there. It was the five barley loaves and the two fish. Now, with our understanding, we would say, no, that's not the answer. But it was all there was. The 40 bucks wasn't the answer either, but all they had was the choice between the 40 bucks or the five barley loaves and the two fish. Peter's response was to take the route that might yield a little more success, the 40 bucks. I mean, it's not much, but it's more than the five barley loaves and the two fish. But notice Jesus' response. He saw those five barley loaves and two fish as the answer. Why? Because it was there. 
spending the 40 bucks would imply that Jesus isn't providing for anything. Somebody would first have to go out and do some fancy financing to get everything you can out of that 40 bucks to feed the crowd. So we're talking about expenses, time, and effort to accomplish a goal that really can't be accomplished to begin with. But the food was already there. So Jesus thanked the Father for the barley loaves and the two fish, and that's important because that implies from Jesus' point of view, those five barley loaves and the two fish were predestined to be the answer to their problem. The food was there. That's Jesus' perspective. We don't see it that way because we're waiting for the miracle to happen first. We want to see the five loaves and the two fish turn into what Jesus turned it into before we start seeing it as the answer to God's call. And I personally find that interesting because how many times have we felt God tug us in a direction to do something? We pray about it and we know it's him tugging us and we know what it is that he wants us to do. But the question of how always comes up. But God would never ask us to do anything if he didn't also plan to provide the means to carry that order out. The problem is us. Jesus told his disciples to feed the crowd of 5,000. The command came straight from Jesus, so it would be Jesus who provides the means to carry that command out. But the disciples didn't see it that way. They started looking for their own means. Well, we've got 40 bucks. That was the first response to Jesus' command. Then Andrew mentioned the five barley loaves and the two fish, but he doubted that it would work. His very mention of it was actually more of a mention of futility. Well, here's five loaves and two fish. That's one loaf for a 1,000 people and one fish for 2,500. But Jesus said, go get it. So the disciples obeyed, which is more than what a lot of us would probably do. Some of us might tell God to his face no, because we'd say, God, that's not enough. But sometimes you've got to look beyond the physical means and just be obedient before you can see what God's going to do. God is not the author of confusion, and he's certainly not the author of doubt. When he gives us a command, he will also provide the means to carry it out. But when we see the means he's provided, we turn it down because we say, no, that's not going to work. Like he's smart enough to do everything that he's done, but now he's suddenly stupid and doesn't know what he's talking about. What if the disciples had done that when Jesus said, bring me the five loaves and the two fish? What if they had said, no, you get it. I'm not making a fool out of myself picking up those measly five loaves and two fish like that's going to work. If they had said that to Jesus, we wouldn't have this miracle recorded here, folks. But fortunately for us, the disciples were obedient. So because they were obedient, they got to see what God did with those five barley loaves and the two fish. And something else is pretty neat. Before Jesus started passing out the food, he told his disciples to make the people sit down. Those are the words recorded for us, which is interesting. I'm sure nobody went out there and physically forced people to sit down. But those are the words that Jesus used and it's preserved for us here in the text. Make them sit down. And then the very next verse, it tells us they all fell down on the ground, which was covered with thick green grass. Any of this sound familiar to you? Is it possible that the Holy Spirit was giving a hat tip to the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Pretty cool, huh? Now, the aftermath of this miracle, which is a pretty public miracle, folks, I mean, 5,000 plus people took part in this. The aftermath of this miracle is recorded by Matthew in chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, Mark in chapter 6, verses 45 to 52, and John in chapter 6, verses 14 to 21. Matthew and Mark record that at once Jesus insisted and directed his disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Why? What's the urgency? 
John records, it's because when the people saw the miracle that Jesus had performed, they began saying, surely and beyond a doubt, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus knew that they meant to come up and seize him, that they might make him king. So he sends his disciples off and tells them, go ahead without me, we'll meet up later. Get in the boat and go before me to the other side. So they did, and Jesus sent away the crowds, and after he had dismissed the multitudes, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was still there alone. Even Jesus knows the importance of setting aside some alone time to be with the Father. But remember how before the 5,000 were fed, the disciples told Jesus that it was getting late? How late do you suppose it is now? Because since then, 5,000 people had bread and fish passed out to them. They've all eaten it, and now the disciples are in their boat crossing the sea. Matthew and Mark record that by the time it was during the fourth night watch, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., they were in the middle of the lake. Mark reports that they were troubled and tormented in their rowing because the wind was against them. Well, guess what? The sea was getting rough and rising high because of a great and violent wind that was blowing, and the boat was being beaten and tossed by the waves. Now, folks, you know what they were thinking. Oh, no, here we go again. But at the same time, they were thinking, no, we've learned our lesson. Our faith is stronger than it was the last time this happened. Jesus knew about that storm then. He knows about this one here. Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Jesus is in control, right? Except there's only one problem. Jesus isn't with them. They left him behind on the shore, remember? Is he really in control? If he was really in control, and if he knows all things, then why did he send us out here alone, knowing that this storm was coming? No, don't look at it like that. Have some faith. Jesus did know, and he's not concerned. Yeah, but he's not here. And the wind's getting rough, and we can't row anymore. We're stuck out here. It's four o'clock in the morning, and the wind keeps working against us. Well, Mark reports that even though Jesus was still on land, alone in prayer, he saw what was happening. So he came to them, walking directly on the water. And this is peculiar. Mark reports that as he came to them walking directly on the water, he acted as if he meant to pass by them. You know, you're too slow. You guys keep rowing. I'll get there before you do. But even as he was acting as though he meant to pass by them, he was approaching the boat. And John reports that the disciples were terrified. Matthew and Mark report that they screamed out in terror and said, it's a ghost. Now, folks, why would they say that? See, this story is so familiar to us, and you would think that they would assume it was Jesus, but these guys weren't familiar with all of our little Sunday school lessons. And I don't think the majestic paintings that we've seen of this event can do it justice. First off, you got to remember, the last time that they were caught in a storm like this, there was a demoniac waiting for them on the other side of the shore, who called himself Legion. Remember? So they know they've sided with one who's against these dark forces, but now they're alone. And it's between 3 and 6 in the morning. So it's in the deepest, darkest part of night. And with a storm approaching, the clouds have covered any moonlight that might have been available. And this is long before electricity and city lights put a glow on the clouds. So it's pitch black. And they're out in the middle of the sea. The storm approached. And somebody's out there walking on the water. You know, the closest thing I can compare this to might be the old Twilight Zone. There's something on the wing of the plane, you know. Well, you're rowing this boat in pitch dark, the waves are picking up, and then suddenly, did I just see that? There's somebody out there. And in spite of Jesus' miraculous power that they're aware of, he really hasn't done anything theatrical like this. 
This is a first. So they weren't expecting this. They never made the connection. So, yeah, they got scared, and with good reason. But instantly he spoke, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. Now, folks, all of them were instantly relieved, but Peter got caught up in the excitement of all this and did something that only Matthew records. John didn't record this for whatever reason. Mark didn't record it, probably because it was too embarrassing to Peter. Luke didn't record it because he probably couldn't verify it because it happened on the boat. But Matthew recorded this for us as soon as Jesus said, Hey, don't be scared, it's me. Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. (laughs) So Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. But when he perceived and felt the strong wind, he saw the waves, he became frightened, and as he began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And instantly Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And while holding him, he said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, folks, when I was a kid and heard about this story, I always got a little upset because I thought Peter did a pretty good job of showing some really strong faith. I didn't see anybody else volunteering to jump out of the boat to walk on the water. But as I've gotten older and gone through a few things and compared Scripture with Scripture, I figured out what was going on. Peter was caught up in what's called the joy of the Lord. He was so excited to be in the company of Jesus Christ. In the midst of the trials that were going on, Peter was excited and relieved because you've got this storm coming up. Peter's learned his lesson from last time. Jesus isn't going to fail us. My faith was lacking the last time, but I've learned my lesson. So while this storm begins building, they're getting a little scared because unlike the last time, Jesus isn't here. But Peter's holding on to his faith. Ah, Jesus will take care of us. Yeah, but he's not here. Doesn't matter. Jesus won't fail us. I learned my lesson last time. And then finally, they see Jesus walking on the water. So Peter's like, I told you, I told you. Didn't I tell you? Look at him. Look at that. Didn't I tell you? Hey, Jesus, since that's you, command me to come to you on the water. This is what Christians call a spiritual high. It's when you're so wrapped up in the knowledge of God's awesome providential care, you feel invincible. I mean, you really you feel like you can do anything. Like bullets can bounce off your chest. It's an awesome feeling. And it's in those moments that we take huge leaps of faith. I mean, huge. Because we're not worried about anything. Ah, Jesus will take care of that. And that spiritual high remains consistent as long as you're keeping your eyes on the Lord. But the moment, and I mean almost to the millisecond, the moment you take your eyes off of the Lord and start looking at your circumstances, the spiritual high evaporates and anxieties and fears take over. And then you start to sink. So eventually you wind up like Peter did, screaming, Help, Lord, save me! And we brought this up before when Jesus was giving his famous Sermon on the Mount. One of the famous lines in that sermon was where Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What things was he talking about? What things shall be added? Your needs, your protection, your security, your peace, your well-being, all those things that he brought up prior to that line in the sermon. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And I mentioned then that it's kind of tricky because we can accidentally fall into the trap of trying to seek first the kingdom of God so that we can have all those things added to us. And if that's why we do it, then it won't work. Because if you seek the kingdom to get something good in this kingdom, it won't work. You can't really say you're seeking first the kingdom of God if you're seeking it to get something here in this kingdom. Another way of putting it, if you seek Jesus to walk on water, then it won't work. Because you'll be looking around you to see if you're really walking on water. And how well you're doing at it is what will sustain you instead of relying on him to sustain you. Looking at circumstances. 
Peter's eyes were fixed on Jesus before Jesus got there. His eyes were fixed on him before he stepped off that boat. He didn't just jump off. He first acknowledged Jesus' command structure, said, since it's you, command me to come over there. You know, I'm not doing this without your approval. And that's always an essential thing to do. You don't make giant leaps of faith without getting Jesus' okay first. But Jesus said, yeah, come on. So Peter did, and as long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he walked on the water towards him. But the moment he looked around to see how awesome it was to be walking on water, and he saw the waves, and he felt the winds, he got scared. And suddenly those waves and those winds were bigger to him than Jesus was, and he sank. Help, Lord, save me. So that's why Jesus grabbed a hold of him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And both Jesus and Peter got into the boat, and when they got into the boat, the wind immediately ceased. And that, you know, that just gives me goosebumps every time I read something like that. I mean, you would expect a winding down or something. The wind immediately ceased. Then they that were in the ship were exceedingly amazed beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. In other words, they didn't remember the lessons that they had learned from the whole scenario with the five loaves and the two fish. You know, the whole point behind everything that Jesus shows you is so that you can build on it. If Jesus can feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread, then he can stop this storm and he can walk on water. They didn't do that. They were exceedingly amazed beyond measure and wondered, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. And they knelt and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And get this, immediately the ship was at the land which they had been slowly making their way. This is a part of the story that most people don't remember. Everybody's focused on Jesus walking on water. Yeah, but did you know that once he got into the boat, the boat went from being in the middle of the lake to the shore with no trip in between? See, by walking on water and controlling the weather, that proves his command over the laws of physics. But folks, this last verse shows a space-time displacement. First they were here, then they were there. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. 